The scripture reading this morning is out of Romans chapter 11, verses 9 through 16. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. There we go. Thanks, Aaron. Um, I'll tell you, I'm beginning, even though I'm still sure that um, not interrupting the sermon series for Advent is the right move, I'm really missing Advent and uh, wishing we could uh, we could be together and light the candle together and, and those kind of things. So uh, I just can't wait till the stupid pandemic's over. Um, so be, let's, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, I was uh, thinking as, as Ramey was praying earlier, that idea of dust. And Lord, we are made of dust. You took the uh, dust of the earth and scraped it into a pile, blew life into it, and created man. And so, Lord, when we think of Advent, when we think of the incarnation, the miracle of Jesus coming to us, um, Father, I just think of uh, what would it mean to a huge cargo ship to dust, put a little dust on it? Would that change the cargo ship in any way? Or a, a precious piece of furniture, some, some collectible item that was so beyond value, would it ruin it if it put a little dust on it? Um, and yet, Lord Jesus, the infinite, this eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, sprinkled a little dust on himself and became man. And Lord, we're grateful that you came after us in that way that you didn't diminish, lose, or tarnish your deity. You remained fully God. And yet by adding the dust that we're made of to that infinity, you came and did something amazing in saving us. So Lord, I pray that in this Advent season that you would um, surprise and delight us, that you would sneak up and, and, and open our eyes once in a while to what it means that there was a baby in a manger that the, the child that was born was called the Son of God, that an angel announced your birth. And Lord, cause your church to delight in the fulfillment of that promise. As your church had longed for it before you came, Lord, and now we look back and we're, we're grateful for it. So thank you for that. And Lord, now I just pray for our country, for our world as um, the COVID uh, 
infections are surging, just like the, the uh, immunologists and the epidemiologists said they would in the spring. Here we are in the fall and into the winter and, and the surge is happening. And we're watching the hospital beds fill and all of that. Um, it's, it's possible to think of that in the abstract as just numbers, but Lord, that's human beings. That's people, that's faces, that's family members, that's mothers and fathers, that's sisters and brothers and, and children. And so, Lord, we pray for those who have been infected. Lord, would you um, continue your mercy in having most of them have very mild to no symptoms. But, Lord, those poor folks who are in the hospital um, who have been hospitalized because of their illness, Lord, we pray for, um, for their recovery, Lord, that you would have mercy on them and restore them soon. Father, we pray for the emergency workers, for the nurses and the doctors who are now stretched so thin because their beds are so full. Lord, would you give them an extra measure of energy? Uh, Lord, would you grant them a, a supernatural amount of clarity in dealing with the patients and the illnesses? And Lord, we pray uh, for the speedy deployment uh, and successful deployment of the vaccine. Thank you for the, the mercy that you showed us in having that develop so quickly. Lord, that's, that's a miracle in itself. And uh, so, Lord, we, we see these moves of yours in the midst of this pandemic, and we, we praise you for your general grace to humanity, that you don't just wipe us off the face of the earth, but, Lord, that you continue to give us the tools, um, the, the wisdom, the, the brains, the insight, the technology to fight off these damaging effects of the fall of man. Um, Lord, that you give us ways to repel those, uh, those disasters. And so, Lord, would you continue to do that now? And Lord, as we just prayed, would you show us yourself through the preaching of your word? Lord, don't let me get in the way. Don't let me get confused or make it confusing. But Lord, help me to handle your word well so that we would all be not amazed at what a great orator I am, but Lord, that we would be amazed at what a great God you are. And Lord, would you have mercy on us in that way? Show us yourself through your written word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, now into the second portion of chapter 11. And actually, it's part two of the first part of chapter 11. Um, verse one and verse 11, where we're going to be kind of going today, both begin with the exact same three Greek words, lego un me, which is translated as I asked, therefore, not something. The, the not is just kind of hanging there. But the, the verse 1 and verse 11, exact same three words. They ask two questions. Verse 1 asks, God has not rejected his people, has he? And verse 11 asks, they did not stumble in order to fall, did they? And both questions are answered with the exact same two Greek words again. Me genoito, uh, me genoito which is um, not existing or not to be or something like that. So by no means or no way is an accurate translation. So since we've got so much commonality between verses 1 and verse 11, I think we have to realize these are both asking the same question. Um, what we see, though, is as, it's at, as Paul asks the same question, he's doing it from two different perspectives. So verses 1 through 8, he asks the question, well, what has God done? Has God rejected his people? No way. Verses 11 through 16, which we'll be looking at today, Ask the opposite, the other side of that coin, and it says, well, what have they done? Have they stumbled so that they would fall? No way. 
And then verses 9 and 10, the reason I backed up to pick those up again is because verses 9 and 10 kind of act as a pivot there between those two questions. And so what we need to answer as we dig into this second part of, uh, of that question, you know, the, the God does not um, forsake his people question, what we need to answer is who is they in uh, verse 11? Did they stumble so that they might fall? Um, so just a quick review of our section, who, what happens to them? Um, in verse 9, their table is a snare and there is a stumbling block. Verse 10, their eyes are darkened and their backs are bent. Verse 11 asks the question, did they stumble to fall? Uh, verses 11 and 12 mentions that they trespassed. Verse 14, Paul hopes to save some of them. Verse 15, they rejected or were rejected, and also they might accept or might be accepted. And we'll answer that question when we get down there. So that kind of paints a picture of what's going on. These people are in trouble. Whoever they are, they're in trouble. Now, when we back up to 9 and 10 and we look at what uh, Paul quotes there, he, he cites Psalm 69. It's not a direct quote, pretty close, but not exactly. And so he's citing uh, Psalm 69. Um, if we take a look at Psalm 69 from a New Testament perspective, how does the New Testament approach Psalm 69? There's actually six places where Psalm 69 is either directly quoted or referenced in the New Testament. So I want to work through those really briefly, take a look at what they say, and then we'll begin to pull together this picture of who they are. So in Psalm 69, if you want to turn there, might be helpful looking at verse 4. In verse 4, the, the verse says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. So that's the first citation. That is actually referenced in John chapter 15, verse 24. So this is, Jesus says, finish the Last Supper, and he's preparing to go to the cross. And so he's doing some teaching, and he's also going to do some praying. And this is what he says, beginning in, in verse 24 of John 15. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So Jesus points to Psalm 69 as he points to his opponents, to, to those who are opposed to him. And what's scary is it says not only did they hate him, but they hated his father. So these folks who have their law hate not just Jesus who came in the flesh, but also God who sent them. That's a pretty chilling uh, accusation. The next one comes in. Um, verse 9, the first half of verse 9. It says, for the zeal of his house, or the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So that first quote, the zeal for your house has consumed me, also is from the gospel of John. John chapter 2. Now, in, in John's gospel, he moves the cleansing of the temple, not to ho from Holy Week, but he puts it right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so he tells the story then rather than at the end. And so what he says is Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the, the money changers with their pigeons and their doves and the, the, uh, the coin changers and all of that. And he turns over their tables, makes whips out of cords and beats them and chases them out. And in verse 16 of chapter two, he says, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's, a ho my father's house a house of trade. And then John ins inserts in verse 17, 
His disciples later remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so what, what we're seeing there is Jesus is opposing those who would structure temple worship so that it would turn into a strip mall. Um, you would come in with your sacrifice and be rejected because they'd find something wrong with it. You'd have to go change money at an exorbitant rate, go buy a new sacrifice and bring that forward. So it was really just this turning God's temple into a, a, a strip mall, into a marketplace and driving them to that. So Jesus' response to that is violent. Some of the most violent things we see him do, flipping tables and beating people with cords. Um, the second part of, chat, of verse 9, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We'll actually look at that in a couple of chapters. It's chap Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, where it says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, I, I will unpack that more when we get through there, but let's just leave that hanging for the moment. Uh, so let that bug you, and if I don't cover it, you can, you can nail me later. Uh, the next citation that shows up in the New Testament is uh, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, it doesn't get quoted exactly, but it does get referenced in all four Gospels. And the story where that comes up is as Jesus is on the cross, as he's suffering on the cross for the sins of the, uh, the people, um, he says, I thirst. And instead of giving him water or something to, to sustain him, they offer him sour wine, which could also be translated vinegar to drink. Um, so the one gospel that I think makes it the most clear that it's referring to this text comes from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So the picture there is these people have turned against Jesus. They have turned him over to the Gentiles. They have falsely accused him. They have trumped up charges to get him crucified. And then as he hangs on the cross suffering for the sins of the people, they mock him. And when he says he's thirsty, they offer him vinegar. So they're just heaping insult upon what he's already suffering. The next two verses, 23, or 22 and 23, are what Paul cites here. So they're in our, set, our text. And then the last one, for me, is the most chilling. It's the one that startles me the most. Verse 25, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Where this one comes up is in Acts chapter 1. Um, this is in the gap between Jesus' ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the church is kind of huddled down. They haven't broken out into the streets preaching the gospel yet. But as they're together, they're not doing nothing. They're not just sitting around. Um, in Beginning in verse 15, I'm going to skip some verses just to get the story a little tighter. But uh, beginning in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let no one dwell in it. So what Peter does is Peter looks at the Psalms 
And he interprets them in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he said, this psalm is pointing toward Judas. And therefore, he quotes another psalm too, but he says, therefore, what we have to do is we have to replace Judas as one of the 12. So if we gather these together, what you see is this picture of who they are. They are the ones who have hated Jesus without a cause. They opposed him. They're the ones who allowed the temple to become a method of making money for themselves. They're the ones who taunted and, and, and ridiculed Jesus on the cross. Hey, he's calling out to Elijah. Let, leave him there. Let's see if Elijah shows up and saves him. What would they have done if he had? That would have been terrifying. They, they, when he says he's thirsty, they offer him uh, sour wine. And then the most chilling thing is, in that group of them is Judas. Judas, the, the betrayer, the one who is destined to betray him. That's not a very good looking picture of who we're talking about here. They is a bad group of people. And so that's why when Paul quotes the, the uh, psalm, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they uh, cannot see and bend their backs forever. What he's, he's quoting this is kind of a summation of who these opponents to the psalmist are in Psalm 69. Their fulfillment of that is in who the opponents of Jesus are. So they, in this case, is not a good group of people so far. Um, now, as we move into verse 11 and, uh, through 16, don't forget that that's not the full explanation of who they is. They, they, is, they are. Um, there's more to it. Remember what I said at the beginning, which is verses 1 and 11 are really mirroring each other. So we have to take those two together. Has God rejected his people? May it never be. They've rejected him, we saw through the psalm. But what he's asking now is, have they stumbled in order that they might fall? So if they includes his people who he hasn't rejected, then we should answer with Paul, by no means. No, God hasn't rejected his people. But the picture is, look at how bad his people have been. Look at how, how opposed to him they are. And he hasn't rejected them. Um, what we learned last week is that he hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so we talked about a remnant there. So that's what's going on here. So did they stumble in order that they may fall? Now, the whole nation didn't stumble. Um, the apostles kind of did. They, they got afraid and they scattered and they took off. But uh, since a lot of those quotes were from John, think about John's gospel. Who was at the foot of the cross when Jesus is dying? John, who, who wrote the gospel, and Mary. And, and so Jesus would turn to him and say, behold your mother, behold your son. So they hadn't abandoned him and taken off. Um, Mary Magdalene and some of the other ladies watching from a distance to see where they were going to bury him. They hadn't scattered like the apostles had. So the whole nation hadn't abandoned Jesus. But if we take the nation as a whole, did they stumble? Yes, they stumbled. Did they stumble that they may fall? Yes, some of them did. Um, so why do I say that some of them did? Um, is that justified or am I just reading into it? Well, if we kept going, we'll see this next week, verse 22. Um, as Paul is beginning to sum up his argument, verse 22, he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. So did some of them fall? Did some of them stumble in order to fall? Yes, he, and, and those will receive severity. 
but God's kindness to you provided you continue in, in his kindness. So that, that's how he points it out. He says, yes, some actually did stumble to fall. So um, we'll, we'll unpack that next week when we get there. So what is the result then of those who have stumbled to fall, of those who have rejected Jesus, of, of all of those things? Did that disqualify the nation of Israel? No, it didn't disqualify the nation. It had positive in, in, um, outcomes. Paul continues, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So they reject Jesus, they crucify Jesus, they throw him out, they, they persecute his church, and the result of their trespass is not, well, the whole thing comes crashing down. The result of their trespass is it bursts forward into the entire world. And so it's the salvation of the Gentiles. I'll come back to that point about making Israel jealous in a moment because Paul repeats himself in the second part. Um, so what's going on here is this idea of salvation coming to the Gentiles. It's not just theology that Paul's talking about here. It's not just looking at uh, some scriptures and saying, well, see this happen. It's actually Paul's experience. Remember, he's on the return from his missionary journeys. He's heading to Jerusalem when he writes this letter. And so he's, he's fresh off the mission field. He's still got these stories rattling through his head. And when Acts 13 happens, that was his first missionary journey, he came to Perga. And Perga is on the southern coast of Turkey. So he went from Antioch and Syria to Crete or to um, uh, Cyprus, travels across Cyprus, and then he sails from Cyprus north up to uh, Turkey. And when he gets there, um, this is part of the story about what he did when he got to Perga. Uh, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So he had already come and he preached one Sabbath at the synagogue. And the result was the whole, almost the whole city is out there. They're just overwhelmed with this message. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And the response that they received from that is that a whole bunch of the Jews and a whole bunch of the Gentiles follow Paul as he's cast out of that. So when Paul says, look, their rejection didn't end the mission, what it did is it propelled it forward into the rest of the world. That's Paul's experience. And so when we look through the scriptures, you can see where it talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles. The Gentiles will come in, they will grab the hand of a, a Jew and say, lead me to Jerusalem and show me who your God is. What Paul's doing is he's experiencing that personally in his mission. So here's Paul's hope. As, as he said earlier, he is, is deeply wounded. His heart is broken for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wishes that more Jews would be saved, that they would come to know and trust him. But they, they aren't. And so how does he, how does he assuage that, that feeling of, of sorrow in his heart? Is he remembers, well, God chose some of them. And so when he looks here, he says, look, what's going on is, though my countrymen have rejected Jesus, the good news is his glory abounds even more because he's going out to the Gentiles. It's, it's spreading even further. It's going in ways that, that I wouldn't have expected it. 
And, and that's kind of the theme of this section is the gospel going in ways you wouldn't expect. So do you know somebody in your life who you think there is no way they are ever going to trust Jesus? There is no way that they are ever going to put their hope in him. Well, what we see here is Paul is not intimidated by that. He, he looks and he says, look, there's no way the Gentiles would ever accept a, a Jewish Messiah who died on a cross. That's, that's anathema to them. That's, that's the, the worst death anybody could have. They love their heroes. They love Jason and the Argonauts and, and Zeus and all these big, huge heroes, not somebody like Jesus who, who dies. And yet his ministry is to them. And why? Because the Jews, surely the Jews would have accepted Jesus. I mean, they had the, the prophets and they had the scriptures and all of those things. Surely they would be the ones who would accept Jesus. And no, they're not. And it doesn't cause Paul to despair and give up on the gospel. It causes him to go forward and keep preaching and keep preaching and keep preaching. So the point is, don't forget what Paul said in chapter 9, verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So that's the fuel that fires his desire to preach the gospel is he's going to carry it to the Gentiles because they're responding. He's going to continue to preach it to the Jews because they should respond. But in the end, he's like, it doesn't matter what they think or what I think. It, is on, it depends on God who has mercy. So when we stop for a second and look at this based on what Paul is telling us here, what we see is it's Paul's mission to the Gentiles is his mission for the Jews. He, he's preaching the gospel to everybody. So this is what he says, verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's looking at the church of Rome, and he's, he's speaking now to that portion, which is Gentile, which is in Rome at this point is probably a large portion of them. Inasmuch as then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my mission, my ministry, in order that somehow, uh, in order to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. So Paul's ministry pattern has been to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So as he goes into all of these different towns, he goes into a synagogue first, and he preaches the gospel until the synagogue kicks him out. And then he takes the Jews who believe with him out, and he goes and he preaches to the Gentiles. That's been his ministry pattern all the way through uh, Acts so far. Um, so many will follow him and, and, and trust in Jesus, and those that won't, won't. So he, he is, considers himself um, um, an apostle to the Gentiles. That's, that's where he sees his primary mission field. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's forsaken the Jews or that he is just doing this in order to make the Jews jealous. Um, what he's doing is he is doing what God is leading him to, preaching to the Gentiles, hoping to make the Jews jealous so that they would see and that they would hear good news. So he says, I magnify my, my ministry. Um, that's a, an odd phrase that he says there. The, the word magnify is actually doxa, which is glory. Um, so uh, most of the modern translations go with magnify. In other words, I want to make the most of my, my, um, my ministry. The New International Version says, I take pride in my ministry, which is kind of the idea of, of glorying in it. Uh, some of the lesser known ones I found interesting, uh, I promote my ministry, I take pride in my work, I bring honor to my ministry, I will make the most of my ministry. Those are lesser um, 
lesser translations, lesser known translations. So what he says is, I magnify my ministry. I glory in my ministry. I delight in my ministry. I work hard in my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous. I want them to see the blessings that are flowing to the Gentiles, the promises that were made to Abraham going to the Gentiles, the promises that were made to David going to the Gentiles. I want them to see that. And I want them to be jealous. I want them to be stirred to jealousy. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 13. As the whole town comes out, as the whole city of Perga comes out to hear the gospel, it made the Jews jealous. Um, they had been in that city for an awful long time. Who is this upstart Paul guy coming in here preaching this Jesus who we don't even care about? And all of these Jews are coming, or all these Gentiles are coming in. That made them jealous, and so they cast him out. So he was hoping for the opposite effect, that they would be jealous and go, oh, we want some of that. Um, so this is, uh, um, this is the reason that he's doing this. Uh, it, it's, it's why he wants the Jews to be saved. He, one of the things that we, you also notice here is he says, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. Now, I don't want to go and treat this like it's a special code or something in the Bible. But if you look in the book of Romans at how Paul uses the word Jew versus how he uses Israel, I found it really interesting. Israel in the book of Romans only happens in, in the section we're in, 9 through 11. And, and that has to do with God's people. And in the majority of the places in the book of Romans, the only time he uses Jew is in relationship to the Gentiles. If you're not a Gentile, you're a Jew. And so it's, it's not a code word that he's using here, but he, he, I think he is getting, I think he has a way of processing these two identities, Israel being God's people, the Jews being opposite to the Gentiles, but also we can see in other places in the New Testament, there were three categories of people. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, and there was the church. So he's looking at the Gentiles and the Jews, and he's saying, make my fellow Jews jealous. They're under that large umbrella of Israel, but those who need to be jealous are that portion of Israel that hasn't accepted Jesus. And what he says is, I want to make them jealous in order to save some of them. Um, so here's one of the mistakes that I've made in the past when I read this section. I kind of read it in isolation. I'm trying to answer an argument or something. I pluck this portion out and read it. Um, is what he says next in verse 15. If I hadn't paid attention carefully, like I have in, in sermon preparation, I get this wrong. And so I want to make sure that we don't get this wrong. He has in his goal to save some of them. So Paul is not under the delusion that he is going to save all of the Jews. That, that's not part of what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm doing the work that the Lord has called me to. My hope is that I will bring some of those Jews to saving faith. So here's, here's where it becomes important. Verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death? So when I've read that in the past, I've thought what Paul was saying was their rejection will be reconciliation of the world. Well, that's what's happening because Paul's going to the Gentiles. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so I've read that their acceptance and life from the dead to mean, well, at the end of the age, then the, all the Jews that are living in the world will become Christians and they will be saved and that will be life from the dead. I don't think that's what that means. I think I've read that wrong. 
because what we see is there's a portion of Israel that's not Israel. And there's a portion that has rejected the Messiah. And so Paul is trying to reach those he can reach. And so when he talks about rejection and acceptance, it's not that God has rejected them for a period of time and then will then decide that he'll accept them just kind of because he decided to. The question is, what does their rejection, who does that mean? I, I, I think what their rejection is, is their act of rejecting the Messiah, not God rejecting them. Go back to verse one. Has God rejected his people? By no means. So that can't be God rejecting them. It has to be their rejection, their act of rejecting the Messiah. So if that's true, then what does it mean their acceptance? Well, what it means is not a national revival where all Israel comes to be saved, but their individual acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. As an individual Jew accepts Jesus as the Messiah, that is life from death. That, that is what happens when anybody accepts Jesus, when they, he comes to anybody, is they become alive in him. And so I, I don't think that's talking about this revival en masse, but it is reflecting Paul's emphasis, his work. What he's saying is, I'm trying to save some of them. And so if their rejection has led me to the Gentiles and the gospel is glorified, I glorify my ministry because it is doing what God intended it to do. How much more will one of them accepting Jesus be life from death? That would be amazing. That would be delightful. That is what I want. So that's what Paul is saying. Is he's, he's not saying, well, what I'm really after is the conversion of the Jews. And the gospel going to the Gentiles is just kind of a means to that end. So, you know, his heart is really to save the Jews, but he does the Gentile thing just because that's what works. That's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, what he says over and over again in his epistles is there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The gospel, remember the, the point of his writing, his, his summation of his gospel is, I believe, or, um, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who is everyone? Everyone is Jew and Gentile. Everyone is righteous and unrighteous. Everyone who believes. And even to make it more abundantly clear, in our context, in uh, chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, he says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of them all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul is hard after the Gentiles because that's where God's glory is going. That's what he's doing. But at the same time, he's hoping for his people, for the Jews, that they would hear and that they would come because they have tremendous blessings. They have all kinds of wonderful things given to them. They're, they're his family, his friends, his co-workers, people he's debated in theology, people who have taught him, people he has taught. That's the Jews. And so he had, they have a special place in his heart. They have a desire for him to come and to trust and to know him. So in, in verse or chapter 9, right at the beginning in verse 5, he, he talks about, to them belong the patriarchs, and from them, um, for, from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he's looking at them and going, you guys, you have such a tremendous place in redemptive history. All you have to do is trust this Jesus. That, that's all you're lacking. And, and they're not. So he's, he's sore 
upset about that. He really wants them to come and he's hoping, he's waiting for them to come. So this leads us into the next verse. And this next verse, I'm just gonna touch on now because it really does link us to the next section. So I'll just touch it here and then we'll, we'll dig into it more next week when we get there. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what Paul is saying here, he's using some, some pretty metaphorical language. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy. So imagine you've got a big clump of dough and the, the scriptures say, you take some of that and you offer that as a first uh, offering of first fruit. So you take a clump of your dough and you give it to the, the, uh, the priest. That clump that you've given to the priest is now holy because it's been offered. What Paul is saying is if that clump is holy, then the whole thing is holy. Or he says, if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. You don't have a root grow up and not have the branches be holy if the root has been declared holy. So the, the bigger portion, the original piece, if that's holy, then, then all of it's holy. Um, that's from the law. If, if something holy bumped into something not holy, that not holy thing became holy. All right, so what does all that mean? Let, let's, let's back up here and, and figure out what this means. Does holy in this context mean saved? So if the first fruits, if, if some of the Jews have trusted in Jesus, they're the first fruits, does that mean that all the Jews will be saved? Is that what holy means? Well, no, it's not. Holy does not mean saved. It means set apart for a, for a purpose. And that's kind of what's been going on with the Jews. I, I mentioned they had a special place in redemptive history. They're holy. They were set aside for a purpose. They were set aside for Jesus or for, for Jesus to come from them. But that doesn't make them all saved. That doesn't make them all believers. As a matter of fact, there's a possibility even non-believers are, are holy. Non-believers can be holy. And, and that's not me making that up. Paul himself says it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. There you have an unbeliever is made holy because his wife has become a believer. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So if one person in a marriage is a believer and the other is not, the unbeliever is holy. Doesn't mean the unbeliever is saved. We're saved. We're justified by faith alone. So if you don't have faith, you're not justified. But in the relationship, that, that unbelieving person is now set aside for God's purposes. There is a holiness that spreads over them. And then Paul finishes the verse, otherwise their children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So their children from this, this, this union become holy. So it's possible to be holy to God and not be saved. To have this blessing of God saying, I have a purpose. I'm, I'm, I'm using you in my plan even though I'm not saving you. And so when, when Paul talks about the first clump of dough um, going as, as first fruits and the whole lump being holy and, and the root being holy, what he's doing is he's looking back at Israel's history. He's looking back at, at how God has used them up to this point and saying, God set them apart for a purpose. He, he made them holy and look at all of the things that he has done through them. Through that, they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. They misused them. They, they treated the law as if that was a justification. But they were entrusted with that. And, and if you look at the history of textual criticism, 
they did a wonderful job with that. They preserved the scriptures so wonderfully. They found, um, I, I forget how long ago, it was about 10 years ago, they found a copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they took that and compared it to modern translations, there was like six words different and they had no consequence on meaning. That's because the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God and they protected them. They handled them extremely well. That from them comes the Christ. They, they may have messed all kinds of stuff up and God still brought Jesus from them. So is that root holy? Even though now some of them are cut off, some of them are removed, are they holy? Yes, they are. They had a special place, but that doesn't make them saved. So this is the measure of Paul's ministry. This is what he's saying. You Gentiles, pay attention to this. You look to the Jews and you say, you don't look at them and go, ah, oh, you know, they screwed up. They, they rejected Jesus. They, they don't want the gospel. They're cut off. They're, they're done for. God wants nothing to do with a Jew ever again. That's not true. He will save from the Jews, from, the, from Israel, he will save those he foreknew. And so that's Paul's ministry. Is he's, he's active in searching for all who will believe in Jesus. The power of the gospel is salvation to all who believe, to Jew and to Gentile. So what we're doing here is we, we need to sort then in, in modern context, in, in the post-Jesus ascension time period, what is the role for the Jew and the Gentile? What is the perspective? Are the Jews now still be to be treated as something special and unique and wonderful? Or is there no distinction between Jew and Gentile? All are offered the, the uh, gospel. Um, that's the question. And that's what we're going to go to next week as we begin to answer that, because we're still hung up on verse one from chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? And we're still answering that question, and we'll answer it more fully next week. So with that, let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful that it doesn't depend on human will or human exertion. Lord, if it depended on those things, nobody would be saved. We'd all be lost. Our will is too flighty and too weak. Our exertion is too feeble. But Lord, it depends on you who have mercy. And so, Lord, thank you for having mercy on Israel, who is Israel, and, and the portion of your people who you foreknew. Lord, thank you for having mercy on Gentiles who have no claim to the inheritance. They were aliens and strangers to the covenants of promise, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. And yet, Lord, you've brought them in. And so, Lord, thank you that you used Israel's rejection of you for a grander, a glo more glorious purpose to spread your gospel beyond that small group of people in the Middle East, to spread it, start it there, that's the holy route to explode it across the globe. And so, Lord, as we, as we consider these things, as we look forward to these things, Lord, we pray for the salvation of more people, more Jews and more Gentiles. Lord, would you have mercy on more and more people and bring them in? And Lord, would you hasten that day when you return to gather your people to yourself? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.